Why has nobody made the argument that seems undebatable that comedians are the world's true masters of public speaking, that they face more potential backlash, they clock up more hours than anyone in more difficult situations, and the business community didn't seem to really pay much attention to them. But a lot of them were even going as far as to say as humor is a risk, so we advise our clients not to use it. And I was like, that can't be true. Let me just study wow. all the world's leading TED Talks. It turned out that all the world's top TED Talks had something in common. They were all funny, every one of them. Every one of the world's top 10 most viewed TED Talks was really funny, not mm -hmm. just a little bit funny. They were making people laugh on average about three times a minute. Yeah. It's funny, I, I'll even meet people who are like, oh, I'm a very experienced professional speaker. And I mean like the best speakers in the world, like top four or five people for doing this. And we'll take their talk and we'll write, rewrite it with comedians. And every time it's better. We stand today. The business method the business with method. a shadow. The business method. The business method podcast. The business method podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs' systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion dollar company, Janet Halroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro podcast episodes that are just two to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode. The Business Method. Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermosi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at thebusinessmethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. David Nihill is the author of the best-selling book, Do You Talk Funny?, and the founder of Funny Biz Conference. David has been deemed one of the best speaking coaches out there, according to Forbes. He is a sought-after sought international business speaker and also professional comedian. He was the winner of the San Francisco International Comedy Competition. As a storyteller, he finished runner-up in NPR Storytelling Competition. As a lecturer, he has taught at Stanford, Berkeley, Oxford, and the University College Dublin. His work has been featured in Inc. Magazine, Lifehacker, The Huffington Post, Fast Company, Entrepreneur, Forbes, NPR, The Wall Street Journal, and The Irish Independent. And his videos have been viewed over 50 million times. 
David was named uh, on the Irish America's 100 list and top 30 global gurus list for communications professionals. David's public speaking program has over 34,000 students and has been featured as one of the best training courses for presenters. His book remains one of the highest rated in the world on the topic of public speaking, and his content has been read by over 1 million people. And you guessed it, you guys, we have David on the podcast, and we're going to talk to him today about public speaking and how to be funny, something I need to work on because I'm a pretty dry guy. So hi, David. How are you? Hey, I, you said it. we have him on the podcast today. And I was like, I don't know if that's true because I nearly left because my intro was so long. I'm like, I'm out of here. Who's, <laughs> who's this weirdo? I'm just going to hang on until the end to figure out who as things started to sound more familiar to me. Yes. Great. Well, if you could uh, just sit back a bit from your microphone, because when you get a little bit too close, it becomes a bit distorted. But when you're, I think, back there, it sounds better. So uh, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, emotionally stable. Und until you said it there about teaching at Oxford, I kind of forgot about it. But that might have been one of the more enjoyment, enjoying moments I had in life where they invited me over to teach. And it was all their academics and staff. And I walked out at it. I was like, this is something I shouldn't say, but I'm going to say it anyway. And I was like, wow, look at the irony of this, that a team of leading academics in England had to reach out to an Irish person, part of a country whose language they forced upon them <laughs> to come and help them with said language and the use of said language. I'm like, don't we all appreciate that? And you could just see them. I was like, I'm going to get killed before I leave So here. ironic. Well, how was the response? They probably laughed. Though, right? they, they, they laughed. Yeah. I think yeah. I bullied them into laughing, but uh, they, yeah, there was, there was definitely a little <laughs> bit of a, an appreciation there for the irony of the situation. Yeah, makes sense. So, so how does a comedian? Let's start with that. How does a comedian get into um, speaking to all these universities? Yeah, it's, it's probably nearly even better to flip that and say, how does someone who might have been able to speak at these universities end up doing comedy? Because um, yeah. I think it's easy enough for uh, uh, somebody who's trained in, in stand-up comedy or accomplished something in comedy, and that's not what really I was, um, to share their knowledge with a uh, university. Like at the moment, Stanford have a course called uh, Humor Serious Business, mm -hmm. and they have everyone from, you know, Set Myers and late night television coming in to teach in there and share with students stuff around creativity and comedy and the benefits of humor. And I, I think on my case, I, I came from it the other way around. I was funny enough working in universities and working for the world's largest private education company overseeing school construction around the world. And I was always scared of public speaking and they always oh, wow. kept get, trying to get me to do it. And I ended up starting comedy to try and get over that fear. So it's pretty ironic that the comedy got me to a point where I had to go back to a university and then actually do some speaking, something I probably left a university to avoid in the first place. <laughs> many, many people probably have actually. I, I want to talk. David, about I want to dive into your book and the the I guess bullet points of your book. So your book is Do You Talk Funny? It's a best selling book. Seven comedy habits to become a better and funnier public speaker. And I think, as you know, many of the listeners know, public speaking is probably a bigger fear than I think even death, right? And it, it's interesting. I remember, like I've spoken all over the world as well and have gotten to the point where public speaking is a high for me. Like it's thrilling. It's exciting to be on stage in front of people on the microphone here. And I would imagine you feel similar. But when I was young in high school trying to speak and I would like slur my words and I get nervous and I was worried if I was going to pee my pants, all these things. And, and everybody has that fear. And it's so strange that so many people have that fear. And it's really not that it's just a mental thing. It's not that big of a thing to get over. So why did you decide to write this book? I felt, well, I had a problem. And the problem I wanted to solve is I don't really like public speaking. I don't want to do much of it. I'm probably never going to feel happy about doing it. But I do want to have the feeling or the ease or the peace of mind that I know when I have to do it that it's going to go well. Mm -hmm. And there was just too many books out there that were just pure waffle like it was the same person who was an expert in public speaking who had 11 other books on public speaking. I was like, how did you dedicate so much time to reading about something that nobody actually wants to read about unless they have a bit of a problem tackling something? And I, I, I read all those things and I read those articles, I read all those books. And there was just a bit of a hole there where all their information seemed to come from like ex news anchors and TV presenters, which is very different than speaking to a live audience. And I'm like, well, who are the world's true experts of speaking to live audiences? 
in the most difficult situation and the most challenging circumstances. And it seemed to be comedians. And I was like, why has nobody made the argument that seems undebatable that comedians are the world's true masters of public speaking, that they, they face more potential backlash, as we're seeing at the moment in the media with Dave Chappelle stuff, as this conversation is playing out for communicating their point of view and trying to get people to see the way that they see the world. They clock up more hours than anyone in more difficult situations. And the business community didn't seem to really pay much attention to them. They were happy to quote them as the masters, but they weren't bringing them in to learn from them so it kind of it struck me as unusual in america that people were willing to pay money to have a tony robbins certified trainer come in and train them in not tony but that in the real world nobody would ever buy tickets to see a jerry seinfeld certified comedian instead of jerry seinfeld that would be insane. You just yeah. turn up to the show and you're like, where's Jerry tonight? And they're like, oh, we have a Jerry certified comedian tonight. <laughs> what does that even mean? But in the business community, we're delighted to have a Tony Robbins certified trainer show up. And, and that always struck me as insane. So I was like, how do I just put out a book that tackles this and bridges the divide a bit between that world of comedy and the world of communicating and public speaking? And maybe if a few more people become open to the argument, more people will look to comedians for advice get tips and habits that will help them faster and the world will become less boring for all of us because those crap presentations that we've all slept through or been subject to where we just feel really bad for the presenter, they won't happen because they'll be getting information direct from, from a source that is a bit more tried and tested in those 10,000 hours on stage. Like it's pretty mental that the average public speaking training company, none of the people delivering the training have been on stage 10,000 hours in their existence. Probably they've only ever been on stage to train you about being on stage. Mm -hmm. So then when you ask them a question that breaks the norm of like eye contact and swinging your arms around your head or whatever weird stuff they're talking to you about, they don't know what to say. Like, well, here's my word order on this sentence. How should I change it? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And you're like, well, that's not very helpful. How do I memorize my talk? What if I go blank? That's my biggest fear. I don't want to walk out and forget everything. How do I memorize that? Well, that's not part of our methodology. I'm like, well, it would be <laughs> if you were a comedian or an actor. So why not tap into that? So yeah, it, just, it was nearly annoyance of all the waffle I came across. Like there was loads of well-meaning good advice, but a lot of them were even going as far as to say as like humor is a risk. So we advise our clients not to use it. And I was like, that can't be true. Let me just study wow. all the world's leading TED Talks. So I watched the top 100 TED Talks by view count at the time, and I ranked them all for the amount of times they made people laugh because I had way too much time on my hands and I should have been getting outside more at the time. I think it was a form of counseling just invented and solely delivered by myself to keep <laughs> me away from humanity. But anyway, it turned out that all the world's top TED Talks had something in common. They were all funny, every one of them. Every one of the world's top 10 most viewed TED Talks was really funny, not mm -hmm. just a little bit funny. They were making people laugh on average about three times a minute. Yeah, and that's that's not too far off a stand up comedy routine. So it just struck me that all these people were out there teaching like, oh, we're going to learn conversational public speaking today. I'm like, what does that even mean? Isn't all public speaking a conversation like we're not up there giving a military leader speech? So like, who do we look to for guidance on that? So, yeah, I think the book was just a desperate attempt for me to try and correct that and save somebody else <laughs> go through what I went through. <laughs> it took me a while to figure out like, oh, just ask a comedian. Who do I know? Can I find one somewhere? Who can I interview? Because they seem to know a ton about this. And if you give them a script of someone who's about to do a TED talk or something, it's like multi, it's like, it's nearly like cheating. It's like mm -hmm. Russia's attempt in the Olympics. They're just all super powered by some magic thing. And you see it with your politicians like President Obama, when he was always delivering a talk, he had three comedians go through it and punch it up. Like mm -hmm. Mort Saul, he was pretty much the founder of um, political comedy in America. He was based in Mill Valley in California. And he was doing shows up until he was like 93 or 94 nearly wow. still. But he was Kennedy's speechwriter back in the day. So like, it's not a modern thing that people are looking to comedy writers to punch up important content. Yeah. I, and I think that's, it, it's so needed. I remember when it really started to stand out for me, how bad most people suck at public speaking is I was in grad school and I had a managerial accounting teacher and she was incredibly, she was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, but the worst communicator on 
planet Earth. And just listen to her. Like, I wanted to rip my eyes out. I'm just like, this is so bad. You've, you need a course in like how to teach. You may be really well, intelligent. You may have some factual information, but you need a course on how to teach and present. Well, and it's funny. And I, I try and look at something like that and go, this person, they never intended to go up there and do it. I never intended to go up there and sweat all over myself and knock things over and stutter and say bad words by mistake and everything crazy I've ever did on stage. Mm -hmm. I never intended to do it. I was responding to a set of circumstances that I hadn't anticipated coming my way. And I didn't know the techniques to deal with, overcome or prepare for each of those things could no one had ever taught them to me. And any of the training I got was just always someone really confident that walked in and was like, hi, I'm amazing. You can be amazing too. And I'm like, this person just rubs me up. To my, all my Irishness kicks in. I'm like, oh, I hate you already. <laughs> uh, I, d I don't want to be like you in any way, shape or form, perfectly manicured. I, d I just want to be me. Can I, can I find a way to do that? Mm -hmm. And what techniques are out there to do that? So I think when we think back to communicators that scared the life of us, Elvis and life, or we thought was pretty boring in our mind, a lot of us will think of preachers, politicians, or university lecturers. Mm -hmm. And those are three realms that don't really receive or are generally not open to much trust training on the delivery because they just assume they have it down because they do a lot of it yeah. it's funny I, I'll even meet people who are like oh I'm a very experienced professional speaker and I mean like the best speakers in the world like top four or five people for doing this and we'll take their talk and we'll write rewrite it with comedians and every time it's better like we, we'll at least improve it even if they're literally one of the best in the world on this topic we can improve it by about 30%, I'd say, as we look through it easily without a whole lot of effort. But that's what multiple comedy writers, and they're just going through it and going, where are you born, people? Where are you losing them? Where are you not relatable? Because they're just great at spotting those things. Like, so what, what did you do here to annoy the audience? Hey, real quick to the listeners out there, I want to ask you something. What are you doing to optimize your day-to-day -day performance and productivity levels? You know, guys, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, and we're always trying to learn more and more about how each and every one of us can optimize our performance. The reason why I'm asking you is because today our show is sponsored by the good folks at Seize. Seize is a mental wellness company that aims to empower entrepreneurs and high performers with supplements to enhance their productivity and minimize their pain points. Flow is their flagship product, which is a ready-to-drink powder that comes in a 30-day stick pack that works as an energy and focus enhancer. Flow was created to improve your focus, increase your alertness, enhance your creativity so you can tackle the prime tasks of the day while staying in a creative flow state. On top of that, there are no energy crashes with their product flow, which means an improved mood and enthusiastic approach to business. These benefits are a supreme advantage for entrepreneurs and high performers to sustain their performance on a regular basis. Flow is an instant and sustained boost. It can be a replacement or enhancement for coffee so you no longer require many cups per day just to stay on top of things. Flow will give you what you need to get your brain cells firing so you can optimize your work results, hit your goals, have more time doing what you love, and spending time with loved ones so you can seize each and every day. When you sign up for Seize's VIP list, you get first access and can receive 50% off the pre-launch offer, you guys. That is half off during this pre-launch offer. Just head over to Seize.life forward slash the business method. That's Seize, S-I-I-Z, Seize.life forward slash the business method to get your discount. We'll put all the links in the show notes, you guys. And now let's hop back into the interview. Yeah, and I think just comedy gives you a a little take on that that the average person in the world doesn't have because you're on stage so regularly that your mind just starts to nearly anticipate how the words will be interpreted by an audience so like every time i say something i'm like how are people going to react when i say that and i think a lot of speakers even when they're really good they don't really strip down their own words to say well when i say this what do they think so we had um eric amidas on the podcast who's the founder of wild fit and I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was talking about this concept of PPM pulses per minute when you're public speaking. How many emotional pulses per minute can you give an individual when you're speaking or the crowd when you're speaking? And you mentioned make them laugh three times per minute, like you're going to be engaging. And then uh, he mentioned that something along the lines that, of that as well, but not only like pulses uh, to make them laugh, but also pulses to engage their emotions, right? So yeah. maybe some sort of make and feel something feel something yeah which makes sense so let's talk about the the seven what are the seven comedy habits 
to become a better and funny public speaker. <laughs> what are they? I was I was laughing when you read out the book title because I I wrote the book a few years ago, and I was like, wow, did I really think that was a catchy subtitle? Seven comedy habits. And then in my mind, I was thinking, I hope he doesn't ask me those seven habits because I'm not <laughs> I'm not sure what they are anymore. And I remember thinking, if I had to retrospectively write this book, I think there'd probably be a lot more than seven. I remember it just, I grouped it around certain things that most people don't do. One was like to start with a story. Mm -hmm. uh, everything you ever do should start with a story and that should be set up in a way that is relatable to as many people as possible. So, and you start in the action of the story if you can for public speaking. So you're never on the way to the mountain to climb up the mountain. You're at the top, nearly about to die. And then you try and piece it back together again to whether you made it or not. I think a lot of people miss a beat on that when they're doing public speaking or they introduce it. So the worst thing you can ever hear at a business conference, like now I'd like to share a story with you because <laughs> they're telegraphing their intentions and we're assuming it's going to be terrible. And we're there with notepad and pen in hand. We paid money to learn something at this conference. Maybe we didn't come to hear a story. We'd like to hear a story. Our brain appreciates stories, but our brain doesn't appreciate when the, the intention to tell one is telegraphed. Mm, so it's just just little things like that like clump the information in group of trees if you can was one of the main habits a, a number of irish people definitely cannot pronounce but i'll have a go of it because it's the shortest amount of elements your mind can recognize as a pattern uh, use the memory palace technique to memorize content so it's a way of turning every bullet point you have into a visual story and placing that story taking place in a physical location so it taps into a lot of the teaching of joshua four in a New York Times bestselling book called Moonwalking with Einstein, which is phenomenal. If you haven't read it, he's a guy who basically just starts covering memory championships. And he's like, wow, this is kind of weird. I wonder if I studied intensely for a year, how good I could get remembering things. And he became the US memory champion and the 11th best mind in the world for remembering things. Wow. So he, did, he just took Pareto's law, the 80-20 principle and, and went to town on it. Like, how can I shortcut this? Well, it's a fascinating thing because nearly everyone in public speaking does not use that technique. And if you truly want to be good and comfortable with public speaking, you need to take the number one fear off the table, which is going blank. And the memory palace fixes that instantly. And it, it gives you a structure that you know, right, I know what I'm going to say in the first 30 seconds. I know what the last line I'm going to say is. I know I have three key points within the talk somewhere. And as I'm doing the talk, you'll never be able to remember just a, a word. It's nearly impossible, especially with all the nerves and the elevated heart rate and the lights. But if you're yeah. visualizing yourself walking around your house and in your house, you're just bumping into stories as you go. That's super easy to remember because your brain just goes, where am I in the house? And that sets off all the visual cues. So you will never go blank. And if, say, somebody falls off a chair, breaks a glass, farts, sneezes, does something disruptive, heckles you, whatever it is, you're very happy to jump into that in-the-moment experience and call attention to it and jump back in because you're not going to go blank. And you never have that feeling when you left a meeting or a presentation that you're like, oh, that thing I was meant to say, I can't believe I forgot to say that because the memory palace takes care of it. So you literally just visualize it as a talk where you're walking around your house. Mm -hmm. And I think like out of, out of the habits I went through in there, there was quite a few of them because I think I had like 80 tips at the back of the book, but they were just things that people don't tend to always start with, don't tend to teach or don't tend to use. Like we've all heard about storytelling and everyone, but not everybody thinks they have a great story off the top of their head. Right. And not many people think that the story that they do come up with then is related to their topic. But what the world's best speakers do is they tell the stories they love to tell, no matter what the topic is. They don't care. They right. know they're so comfortable with telling the story that they can link it to the topic. So they just say a generic statement like, I told you that story because after they tell the story, insert lesson. So it's like you can be extremely vague on what story you tell to support the point you want to make. It's more important that the story is enjoyable mm -hmm. than it matches the topic. And the, the stronger speakers in the world, like Ken Robinson's, if you watch his talk, he's telling all these stories about his family that have absolutely nothing to do with his talk whatsoever. The talk is called Do Schools Kill Creativity? And I think that's something that just most people overlook. And if you think you have no entertaining stories, just think about something embarrassing that happened to you, because if it's embarrassing for you, it's funny for me. We all we all get our, our, our laughter from other people's embarrassing moments, right? Yep, definitely. And it was just little things like that. Like nearly every talk you've ever saw, they finish on a Q&A. Like don't finish on a Q&A, then you don't control the ending anymore. You, mm. you just say, now I'm going to take a few questions before I make my conclusion. And if you say that statement, you're telling people to be brief with the questions, that you have a conclusion yet to come, 
And you never have that awkward moment where it's you standing there like a lemon or just like a weird drunken penguin step swaying <laughs> in the wind because nobody's going to ask you anything. So it takes all the pressure off and you can just cut that out of any video content, no problem at all. And you get a good strong applause at the end. Whereas nice. if you don't do that, you don't control the ending anymore. So like you, no band you'd ever pay money to see would allow a drunken audience member to sing the last song and finish the concert that way. <laughs> but every business presentation you've ever been to encourages that to happen. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's hash this out again. So start with a story, end with a story, have a, a few bullet points that you can visualize and go with a story as opposed to memorizing the entire thing. And then don't end with a Q&A, put the Q&A before the final story and make them laugh three times a minute. Well, you don't have three times a minute would be a lot. So make them laugh any amount that you're comfortable trying to make them laugh with, as long as it's not a joke. So if you tell a joke, it has a high chance of failure, but a story has a very high chance of success because it sneaks up on them and it never telegraphs the moment that you are trying to be funny. Mm -hmm. So if they don't laugh at the end of the story, no big deal. You just told them a story. So there's nothing to be cringeworthy about. So it just feels like you're talking. Um, you don't have to end on a story. You can end on a poignant line if you like, but the talk, the start should be linked to the end. Mm -hmm. So if you have an important sentence at the start of your talk, easy points is to repeat that important sentence at the end or do callbacks, something comedians use all the time, which is a reference to some of the strongest learning points in the talk. So if something was funny or memorable or poignant, put all of those elements together at the end in a closing paragraph. And then the audience knows, oh, okay, this is about to end. Mm -hmm. And like, you can, you can do that after a Q and a as well. So sometimes I build a bit of a cliffhanger and I promised you a couple of things. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Now I want to take a few questions before I make my conclusion. So you can take a few questions and you can still do the wrap up a, lot, a nice sneaky thing to do is to build in a link of resources in your talk and put that at the start. Don't show it to them, but at upfront, tell them, Hey, I'm going to give you a link at the end with everything I mentioned in this talk plus further resources. They'll be helpful to you. Now you've given them a reason to say, well, you don't need to take notes if you don't want to, because I've summarized this for you. The slides are in a place. So you don't have to worry about taking pictures and doing weird stuff if you don't want to. And you've given them a reason to stay till the end of the talk. Cause a lot of people were like, Oh, I'm going to come in for 10, 15 minutes, but then I'm out of here. It's a 45-minute talk. So a good way of keeping them to the end is just delay whatever that information is that you promised them to the very end. Makes sense. But yeah, that one works well. They're just little things that I think, over time speaking, no matter how you good you are, you might miss out on it. Like a lot of speakers, they don't watch the tree speakers before them if they're mm -hmm. part of an event. Like the easiest marks you'll ever get is for one, not repeating what somebody said before you, mm -hmm. building on what they said, or referencing something funny that got a laugh from the audience or weird in your talk so like I, I would come out and i'd say well it's been a great event today we've learned a lot about and i'll go one two three and mm -hmm. the, the third element will be the twist so we learned about if someone was talking about pizza before me for no reason i'm going to say pizza if someone was talking about indonesia i'm going to say we learned about indonesian culture and mostly and importantly we learned that and whatever got the biggest laugh so far that's where i'm going to mention that item so it's a, it's a nice, easy way to start to show the audience that you're different, you're paying attention, and that you're one of them. So you're tying the experience together. And I, I think most speakers are nervously pacing around backstage, whereas if I'm at an event, I'm still nervous, but I just sit in the audience and I watch the other talks. And at the last possible minute, then I disappear back around to the stage. And this is make sure there's no overlap. And then, well, because you know, there's nothing worse than a conference and someone says something and then somebody says the exact same stuff a few yeah. minutes later and you and the audience members like, oh, they already said that. I, I was speaking at a, a business conference in Lisbon and I went to the presentation. It was before mine because it was I was really interested in it. And they taught they they talked about so much of the same thing that I was going to talk about. So I'm literally in the middle of this presentation, reorganizing my presentation, which is right up next to what I had to speak about, um, but something different, you know, so it wasn't overlap. So the, and then the first thing I said when I got up, I was like, guys, I, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, this presentation is not going to be as great as I planned it because it, the, the last guys just spoke on the exact same thing that I had to, and I had to reorganize everything in the middle of it. So uh, word for the wise, if you ever present, uh, make sure you present first and that way you don't have to worry about other overlapping well, content. Yeah. And, but I, I said that as one. a joke, right? Like, and it got nice. a good laugh out of everybody. So. Exactly. So yeah. request that early spot, which, yes. which is, which is a good point, but I'd say on that, what's interesting, I did it. 
it was a talk for it was meant to be a TEDx and it ended up on TED.com. And the lady who went first, typically, if you're the speaker that goes first, if there's going to be audio issues or challenges or malfunctions, you're going to be the subject of all those. So it's a nice position not to be in outside of your joke if you can avoid it. And this lady, and a nice thing to also control in that is your introduction. Super important. You do not want to be the one selling yourself or your own achievement. So outsource that, send everybody an intro for you in advance, write it or print it on a card or a bit of paper that's kind of sweat proof that they can easily fit in their pocket if they're the host and give it to them and just say, please say that. And on that card, just list three achievements. Do you have done? Not that big, crazy sounding bio that you lovely like wrote out for you. No, no, which was lovely. But in live speaking, people would have got up and left. They're like, who does this word up? So it's, it's normally three accomplishments uh-huh. uh, with your name only ever said once and last. So if your name are the, are the last two words, the audience is more likely to give you a round of applause. Wherever the host repeatedly says your name, there's no surprise to you coming out. So it's like when you go to a comedy club, like ladies and gentlemen, your next comedian has just been on a late show with Stephen Colbert. His album is number one on iTunes at the moment. Please welcome. And your mind is like, who is it? So you're mildly interested and you're trained to clap when they finally say the person's name. So write your own intro, give it to the host. And that's important because when I I did this event in Manchester, there was 2,400 people in the audience and the lady that went first, her, her intro was a little bit, I think the microphone was a little bit off. So the audience didn't really get her background or area of expertise. And she walked out and the smoke machine was broken. So there was real extra amounts of smoke on stage. So it felt a bit Halloween kind of vibe. And she walked out and she said, I'm going to start this talk when I feel an earthquake. And then she just remained silent. So it just got creepier. The smoke machine was still man functioning. It was like this <laughs> biblical kind of scene of this lady standing amongst the, the smoke in silence. And the pressure was just grown in this room and the anticipation and like 45 seconds was a long time. And then when the silence broke, she said, okay, I felt an earthquake. She was a human cyborg and she'd had plates inserted in her body and was really famous that allowed her to feel an earthquake at any moment, at any time, anywhere in the universe, which is absolutely amazing. Wow. But it was a real twist in the start of So it's very hard to recover from a wacky start. So she had the intro nailed and the bio and the smoke machine didn't break and she wasn't going first. That talk would have been way easier to give. I was watching that happen and I realized the tension in the room. So when I came out to start my talk, I was like, ladies and gentlemen, now I don't know what to do now. I'm a bit nervous because I was just going to start my talk when I felt an earthquake, but that's been done before. Mm. And then, you know, they all laughed nervously. And I'm like, oh, you're a great audience. Because when she said earthquake, I left the building. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just kept running with that. And I, yeah. I was able to do that because of another thing that most speakers don't pay attention to, uh, apart from your introduction, which is have a clause in any speaking agreement or contract you have that allows you an editing review before any content is published with you in it. Because most people that edit content for conferences just dump it on there. They don't take Q&A. They don't take out awkward introductions. They mm-hmm. don't take out uh, malfunctions in, in software or something going wrong with the audiovisual stuff. Nothing. They just dump it as is. Right. So it allows you an element of quality control. So mm-hmm. the, the, fo- the good folks at TED were actually going to publish my talk with all these references to an earthquake that nobody... Had, would have understood yeah they yeah. wouldn't have had a clue so i cut that out but it also gave me a, me a way of nearly cheating because i get the audience on my side i get the nerves out of me for the first few words that mm. i can barely say because i was so nervous i was about to lay an egg but i got to have fun they all laughed and then we just stop and start the actual talk and nobody knows it happened apart from those who were in the room at that moment wow because when, when i was i was there that day i was gonna say Maisie williams was on and i didn't know who she was because we hadn't had lockdown yet and i hadn't watched every season ever of game of thrones uh-huh. and so she's one of the main characters in game of thrones and her talk was very stop start stop start and i was just like what's going on here like this one is a <laughs> professional actor she'll be amazing but she was playing to the video she's like let me take a moment get my thoughts together and just do the next section and her one turned out to be the most watched and the most successful of the whole event so it was interesting but it all comes back to just a little clause in your agreement where you know you can ask them to give some editing notes and make some changes you said something that that you were so nervous for your ted talk that you could lay an egg but at at this point i think this is good for other people to hear at this point you'd spoken probably thousands of times right what was what was different and and i think it's important for the listeners to know that like 
there may be a t- even if you're comfortable with public speaking, there may be a time when you get nervous again. Like there's another big show that comes up, right? Yeah, or there there might be a stage where you never get comfortable with it, but you know it's going to go well. So when I was doing that, I know it's going to go well. I'm just not sure how well it's going to go. And I they have a confidence monitor on stage, and I've drawn out my memory palace. So my talk is a picture of a, of a floor plan of a house, and it has a keyword written in every room, and that's in front of me on the stage. So that allowed me to goof around for two and a half minutes with the audience and then know exactly where I was and not get distracted to get back on track. Mm. So I kind of had that. I'd requested that I get the spot second before lunch in the morning so i know it's kind of the sweet spot for laughter and people are hungry but not quite hungry so they're not antsy to get out of there yet it was fairly fresh from a break like i had i had controlled a lot of the elements got to do with the talk it's like when you turn up to a venue and the chairs are set up in a certain way that's terrible for speaking like maybe they have cloths mm-hmm. covering the tables and they're sat all around you instead of classroom style and there's big rows and gaps in them all that stuff is suboptimal for speaking and you can actually fix it as the speaker by turning up early. I do that a lot. Like half an hour before a speaking engagement, you'll see me dragging chairs around the room by myself while some event managers, frankly, like, let me ask the unionized work. Can they move the chairs or if we're allowed to do it or check the regulations? And I'm like, nah, uh-huh. I'm just going to do it. And I, I think all those elements help you ensure that whether you feel nervous or not that it's going to go well so i'm i'm nervous all the time i really don't like doing public speaking if i can avoid it i like having fun with an audience and i like the psychology of their behavior as i try and get them to see the world in in my view and walk some fairly sensitive or cutting topics like that are sneakily political or in some way or sneakily opinionated in some way and get divisive topics to make sense to everybody as a whole yeah. I like I like doing that. So I'm excited about the opportunity that, but once it happens, the nerves are up, the hands are sweating, and I cannot stop it. So over the years, I've just assumed that I will be a mess three out of 10 times, and therefore I need to wear clothes that are sweat-proof. I need to never hold anything. If I can avoid holding the microphone, hold it. If I have to hold it, hold it with two hands. If it has to be a, a stand microphone, leave it in the stand for the first 30 seconds until I get comfortable telling the story. So I think like if you start in the first 30 seconds with a story, it becomes very conversational mm-hmm. as opposed to a speech. And you just kind of forget about the stakes that are involved in what you're doing. So the key is just to memorize that first 30 seconds of your talk and have that down more than anything whatsoever. Because if you stumble in that moment, you'll be aware of it. The audience might not be, but it's enough to put you off and make you feel wacky. Mm for the rest of the experience. So I think that feeling might never go away, but there's so many things that you can control that you think are traditionally outside of your control that will lead you to be a bit more calm about the whole situation. Is there a good percentage, David, of of how much hand movement and gestures you should use during a talk? Because I've heard of some people saying, oh, you know, you use your hands too much. Um, And then also other people saying, or is it just a personal preference depending on personalities? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think anyone who trains you on that has been just watching too many Jackie Chan movies or something. And they're just <laughs> obsessed with how he strikes people in the middle of it or like, look uh-huh. at the hand movements. Yeah, I don't, you know, there there is truth and there definitely is a proven link between virality of talks and how much you communicate with your hands on stage as a speaker because it looks natural. We use our hands in everyday conversations. So if we just stand with them by our sides on a camera, on a talk that's being recorded, it looks a little bit unusual. It looks weird to watch. So I would say you can definitely use your hands. Don't be doing the windmill, but there's no need. There's no need to do it. But if you feel you're someone who stands there completely flat with your hands, a little trick is just to use a glass in each hand or practice your presentation with a bottle of beer in each hand. Drink them if you like. I don't care. I won't judge you. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to get comfortable with your hands in that position, because it doesn't seem natural when you're on stage for some reason. So a lot of actors will take a glass in each hand and run those lines. And when the glasses clink, they'll know they're trying to rub their two hands together, which is a bit of a nervous reaction that people do when they're like rubbing an imaginary hamster in front of you. They kind of <laughs> cup their hands together. So it's just to be conscious to, to stop you doing that. And if you're someone who nervously fidgets, love, just acknowledge it and then the audience is fine with it. So I, I think mm-hmm. whatever is comfortable for you is good but move them a little bit. Don't go too nuts and just do a few practice runs holding something glass in each hand. Yeah. And just get a little bit comfortable with that feeling because it, it, sometimes it seems strangely unnatural, even though it's just something as simple as moving your hands. That's a good tip. We had the Harmon brothers on the podcast, the founders of the Harmon brothers, and they were telling us how they like to hire comedians and teach them marketing as opposed to hiring marketers and teach them how to be funny. 
And for those that don't know, the Harmon brothers are the creators of the viral video from Squatty Potty, from Poopery, Purple Mattress, and a bunch of other very successful products. So, and I know you've crossed paths with those guys as well and, and some of the people they work with. Tell us your thoughts, David, on on bringing uh, comedy into business, teaching marketers how to be funny. What's your philosophy? Because you're an entrepreneur too. Uh, true. I, I used to be one that was easier to explain back in the days when I had a proper job. Now I don't think even my <laughs> parents know how to explain what I do. So the Harmon Brothers, I'm very familiar with because I, I've just taken a role on part-time basis with a company called Hub Strategy and Communication, which are an award-winning agency that did a bunch of Super Bowl commercials and stuff with E24 and Snoop Dogg and the Oakland A's in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, the founder, DJ, he spoke at my conference I have a conference around all things humorous marketing content, and I was just always impressed with what they did. So I was like, hey, why don't we launch a humorous, specifically humorous content division and start doing this? So it's a bit like the Harmon Brothers, I suppose. They're really good at it, but I think everybody that has something in common in this space for being really good at it has more comedic writers than people from the business community or a natural copywriting background on the mm-hmm. staff because they've realized that they they can't really teach that humorous perspective on the world as easily as they thought they might be able to. So even if I I work with uh, speech writing agencies all the time and they're like, well, we're pretty, we're pretty covered for humor. I think we're fine there. And then I'm like, well, who does it? And they're like, oh, Brian, he's kind of funny sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but I have three people from Saturday Night Live and two of Obama's speech writers on this. And mm-hmm. this guy was just on Conan last week. And this girl just did her Comedy Central special. Don't you think they'll be better at punching it up? And when they give you a suggestion, they know it's funny. It's it's not down to chance anymore. And then we review it as a group and we're like, that's perfect. Now, how can we link this to something further down? And I think you you can't get that mastery with someone who comes from a a standard background. And that's why I think that the Harmon Brothers model is, is the best one. The way they do it is accurate and you can get far superior funny content that is not seen as risky. Risk, right. Humor is risky if only done by people who haven't a clue what they're doing with humor. But for people who make a professional living out of it all day, every day, for them to punch up. Now, granted, everyone always gets nervous around humor because like, oh, humor is risky. You know, what if they say something transphobic? But like right. we're doing an advertising campaign. We're not going to be tackling those kind of topics in any way. We're doing pretty simple, easy stuff that's pretty hard to misconstrue. And we would put it through a filter of, of funny and business minds to make sure it's on brand and on topic. But yeah, comedians are, are always better at that. Does it, does this, does, does, there's no comparison. They're so good at making impactful statements in fewer words than everybody else. Yeah. How often do you see advertising or marketing, David, that this just kind of makes you cringe? You just think you're like, oh, if they only just did this and this, it would just be so good. Yeah, oh, a lot, uh, especially <laughs> in the B2B world. Like, uh-huh. But they, they don't tend to embrace humor as much as they could. And the funny thing is they're quite happy to put out boring content. And they're like, well, we don't want to be boring, but you know, this is, this is what we have, so we'll just go with that. Right. And I think only now, as they all struggle to build social media profiles, are they raising <laughs> that I think like 60% of the world's users of any form of social media stated their main reason for using that media is to laugh. So if you're not giving them what they came to that platform to get, then you're already behind the curve. But mm-hmm. the, the percentage of marketers who are building in comedy has been growing steadily over the years. So now I think, excuse me, it's about 61% or 59 in around there of all advertising and marketing content that's humor-based at the moment. So that number is a little bit lower in Asian in, in Asia or the Asian bloc countries around there, or Pacific Asia, but... As far as I know, I think it's around 49%, but it, the range is very high. Like half the stuff you're being subject to is funny. So some of it's slightly cringeworthy, but you know, most of it's done professionally and with enough budget. And most advertising agencies have at least one or two comedians or people who dabbled in comedy, did comedy or know a comedian on staff. I think they don't have enough because comedians are not easy staff members. Sometimes you're like, where's Brian? You're like, he's naked in a field this morning over in pizza. <laughs> it was a bit of a rough evening. I do not want to be managing him in the next page or meeting. You know, some of them are very creative souls and tough to manage. And that's why whenever we do it, we do it like a hope. We have six or seven of them and whoever's available and in good shape at that time and good mind and, and sound body and good spirit and we'll we'll take their best work 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah, comedian agency where you can just pick and choose whoever's like the the good the good ones I, to work I, I with. Think, I think you have to like uh, managing comedians is like herding cats. You know, like they're very creative souls to have opinions on most things. And like you know, some days I'm in that category too, where I just don't want to go to your meeting and I just don't feel like doing something. And some days my writing isn't going to be as good as it should be. And I think the only way to offset that is have a large pool to draw from of talent specific to each project. And I think most advertising agencies don't have that. So that's why we were trying to be different. We're going to use an improv team. We're going to script read all these ideas. We're going to do a table read with them, like a bit of a movie. We're going to have people act it out like it was a scene. And we're going to make sure we can punch it up as possible. And we'll have people external to that that'll act as a filter just to say who are not related to the, they haven't been in any of the meetings. They are not invested in the brand. They don't care. They're just our funny filter to make sure we don't do something silly in any way, shape, or form. But I, I think you need those steps and those reviews from people who really know the space and not in a committee. Like that cannot go to a board of directors from a company and go, so what do you think? How do you think about this? We're like, I don't care what you think. We, we're experts in the funny side of it. Yeah. You just tell us what's your brand voice and we'll tell you, we'll produce something that we know will work, guaranteed. How well? Well, let's see. Let's test it and tweak it. But yeah, to answer your question, there's definitely some cringeworthy stuff out there, but... <laughs> It's not horrendous, you know, like it's amazing that car insurance and most insurance in general has become the medium for humorous advertisement. Like the one time in life you get injured or you're unhealthy or your car gets stolen. That's not a moment in life for humor, but all of a sudden it has become with their, their advertising and we're fine with it. So I think if they're able to push the, the envelope and build companies of humorous advertising that nearly every industry should and could follow suit. I think it's 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 well overdue and needed, you know, because in the past people were so in the box about what they could communicate uh, to the public with television, with uh, branding and with radio. And nowadays it's just kind of a free for all because we can get it anywhere, anytime. And so we're used to it. We're used to it. And we're used to people having behaving differently on different platforms. So like if I acted the same on TikTok as I did on LinkedIn, I'd be a bit, I just went on TikTok and start endorsing people for karaoke still. It's like, oh, it's, it's great at karaoke. We once worked together. But it wouldn't make sense. But I think companies are still very much tied to that, that they, they don't treat one of them as experimental. And they're like, you know what? Well, people expect us to be this way on Twitter. Let's be that way. And let's be a little bit different on Instagram and let's be a little bit different on TikTok and see how it plays out. Mm, that makes sense. So I know you like to, you started with a story in the, in the middle of this interview or the beginning of this interview. I know you like to finish with stories. So I'm going to put you on the spot. What's a good closing story for what we've been talking about today? I don't know, actually. What, what do you want to learn about or what should we, what should we teach them? And kind of have a story. What about a funny everything? business story, like a story of somebody you worked with and it was just a comedic time working with that company. Yeah, then what was a fun story around that? Or one in your own business, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. They're nearly always born or they're covered by NDA agreements. Where I, can't, <laughs> I can't say anything. I remember we, we worked with one guy in particular, and I just remembered this highlighted everything that you could see in the example of how a comedy writer takes something. But he used to spend maybe six lines at the top of a presentation communicating that he worked in technology and that made him a little bit socially awkward. Mm -hmm. And he'd just keep going and going and going and like, yeah, we get the point. So we had we wrote rewrote the opening and it said, hello, everybody. I am a socially awkward engineer, also known as an engineer. <laughs> and like everything is was done in that sentence and i was like we're, we're we're done and dusted there like that's it that's five sentences distilled to one and you have a laugh line in your opening statement within the first 12 seconds that tells everybody exactly what they need to know about you and like you because the joke's at your own expense and you're punching down and I, I just think every time we work with someone, I see a moment like that where I'm like, the, like a traditional script writer would never turn that sentence around into mm -hmm. something that was a little joke at their own expense. And yeah. comedy writers always amaze me the ability to do that. So yeah, I think like I got going in all this by someone, I published a course on Udemy and one of the people who took it emailed me. It was the first person who ever messaged me and it was from like a weird .aol.com address that sounded like it was from 1974. <laughs> and they're like, hey, do you ever do private coaching? And I was like, oh, this is definitely one of my friends in Ireland taking the mickey out of me. Mm -hmm. Like, And I was like, oh yes. I wrote back, oh yes, but only on a very exclusive basis based on high <laughs> achievement. And like this guy wrote back and he's like, well, okay, well, I'm one of the, I was one of the sharks off Shark Tank. I have a net worth of like 500 million. Here's my Wikipedia page. Does that qualify? And I was like, 
like, oh, this is real. Oh, boy. Wow. And then, um, yeah, this guy flew out to meet with us and we ended up rewriting all his talks. And that, that pretty much launched the whole business into working on a high level with people who speak regularly and could see the value in this change in some of their messaging and tweaking it and making it more entertaining. So I think the lesson is that one is like comedians are a good source of this. You never know what will happen when you put content out there into the world and you never know who will show up needing it. So you're like, oh, well, this seems like a win-win for everybody. But usually if you have any challenges in the world of public speaking, just study or ask a comedian because I think they're the world's true masters. I, I could agree completely. David, if we're going to wrap up there, if the listeners want to learn more about what you have going on, I know you have Funny Biz Conference, funnybiz.co, davidnnihill.com. Any other places that people can find you or learn more? No, that that's plenty. You can normally find me attached to a kite under the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco when I'm, I'm not working too much. But yeah, davidnihill.com is probably the best source of, uh, of everything or it gives a follow on social media somewhere. Yeah. We have a bun- I have a bunch of content on my on my page somewhere and a bunch of tips you can get all for free. And I think I have a Google talk on this somewhere that's about an hour long if you're really bored. But if you want to watch something that has all the tips in one place, uh, that's not a bad one. Apart from that, it's me in the video scaring the life out of people emotionally. Mm -hmm. But at least the content, I really knew my stuff when I did that talk. Now I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Now you can't even remember the seven habits of your No, I I can't. I'm like, I should, it should have been a better title. I'll tell you that for free. Anyway, David, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all those tips and tricks with us. I think we can all use more comedy in our lives and our presentations for sure and our business and advertising and marketing. So I think it's great stuff. And and kudos to you for all your success. I appreciate it, my friend. Thanks for coming. Uh, Thank you very much. I don't know if there's been any success, but I'm still trying. So thanks for having me. Keep at it, man. I think you're going to make it somewhere someday. (laughs) One day, David. You're like, do something with the word hustle. Whatever you're going to do, just (laughs) add more hustle. That seems to be what they do. Funnyhustle.com. Maybe that's it. We'll check out that domain. So, David, thanks again, my friend. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Listeners, thank you guys for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.